you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we ponder the death of Jesus. Lord, it is almost impossible for our minds to comprehend and our hearts to fully grasp the weight of this day. So by your spirit, we ask that you would help us to not just understand, but to feel what this day is all about. Help me, Lord, to proclaim your truth with clarity. Give us ears, give us hearts, give us minds to receive your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I read for you those first eight verses, but all I'm going to actually do this morning is preach on five words in those eight verses. Now, if there's any kids here from Grace Fellowship, you know those five words, the five words, the gospel on your hand. Let's say it together. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Now, I'm just going to be focusing this morning on Christ died for our sins. But before I do that, let me make some preliminary comments on verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 and 2, Paul tells these believers in Corinth that he wants to remind them of the gospel, the gospel he preached to them. And that word gospel is simply the word good news. So, so Paul's saying that I want to remind you Christians in Corinth of this good news that I proclaim to you. But how did they respond to that gospel? Well, they received it, in which you receive, that is, in the past tense, when they heard Paul preach this gospel, they received it, they embraced it, they believed upon it, and trusted in it. But not only that, Paul says, this gospel that I proclaim to you is that which you are standing in, in which you stand. They're standing in it, that's where their foundation lies, they are putting their trust on that gospel as their foundation, but Paul also goes to say that this gospel is also that which is saving you in verse 2. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. 
So not only when you receive the gospel were you saved by Jesus Christ, but this gospel that I want to remind you of, this good news that I want to tell you again and again, is the same gospel that not only saved you, but is continuing to save you. Paul wants to remind them of this precious good news. Why? It's really quite simple. We never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the gospel. There will never be a time in your life where you will be godly enough or mature enough as a Christian to say that you are no longer in need of being reminded of the grace of God in Jesus Christ for you. And so all I really want to do this morning is to remind you of the gospel, to remind you of the gospel. In verse 3, he connects that gospel that he wants to proclaim to them with what he delivered to them as verse first importance. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, if you were to take away the clauses in verses 1 and 2, which says, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. You'll see Paul's connection here between First importance and gospel. Let me read it like this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's making a connection here between the gospel and that which is of first importance. This gospel is of first importance. You could call it the gospel of first importance. What, what does he mean? By first importance. Well, I think there's two ideas going on here. The first is this, simply doctrinal importance. As Christians, we believe in in one sense that there is a hierarchy in regards to our beliefs. Things that are of first importance. There are secondary matters. Though they are important, they are not as important as those doctrines which are of first importance. So, for example eschatology, that is, the return of Jesus Christ and the coming of the new age. That is very important. And you have to believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's of first importance. But how it all unfolds is not of first importance. Many Christians disagree on how that is going to unfold. And we can, godly Christians can disagree on that subject. But, If you get the Trinity wrong, the doctrine of God, that is, God is one being in three persons. If you get that wrong, Christianity is wrong. It falls apart. So Paul here, when he's speaking of the gospel of first importance, he's, he's simply saying that this gospel is in that category of first importance. It is essential to the Christian life. But not only that, I think Paul's also speaking of universal importance. What do I mean by that? I think Paul's saying this. The most important truth for all of humanity is the gospel, the good news. There is no truth more important for you to hear, for you to understand, for you to receive and embrace than the gospel of Jesus, the good news. This gospel is about your salvation. This gospel is about forgiveness of sins. This gospel is about life and death. 
It is the most important thing you could ever hear and embrace. Now, in verses 3 to 8, he unpacks for us what that gospel is. And I'm not going to read it again, but we can summarize it simply by saying that the gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But my objective this morning is to focus on the first part of that gospel. Christ died for our sins. Now you're thinking this might be a short sermon. Guess again. (laughs) Every word here is significant. Every word in those five words has meaning. There is weightiness in every one of those words. In these five words, we discover the who of the gospel, the what of the gospel, and the why of the gospel. So first, the who of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. This good news is about the person of Christ. Now this word Christ, it is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title. What does it mean? Well, this word has the idea of Messiah, the anointed one. The writers of the New Testament understand this title to be a divine title. A divine title. You remember Israel's history where God brings them into the promised land. He establishes David as king and then also Solomon. And, but Israel disobeys and rebels against God. And God continues to warn them, come back to me, come back to me, repent and come back to me. And of course, they do not listen to him. And so he warns them of coming judgment and he sends them into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. They are conquered by the Babylonians. And during that period, there are several prophets that God raises up. And they are writing of this Messiah, this anointed one, this kingly figure who has human characteristics, but he also has divine characteristics. He's godlike. He's the deliverer for his people. He's going to deliver his people from their sins. He's going to bring restoration to the whole world. The nations are going to come and worship him and pay him homage. And Paul, here and in the rest of the New Testament, all the other New Testament writers claim that Jesus of Nazareth is this figure. He's the Christ, the divine kingly figure. He is what the scriptures make clear, God in the flesh. Now there are lots of scriptures that speak about Jesus' divinity. And I'm going to read to you some of them so that we understand very clearly that the Christ is not just a man, he is both fully God and man. So in Matthew 1, 22 to 23, we have the story, the birth of Jesus. And this is what we read. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in this babe that is born on Christmas morn, you have God with us. God in human flesh. 
Not only that, this word Christ is tied to being the Son of God. For example, in Matthew 16, 13 to 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples and he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus affirms what Peter is saying by saying, yes, my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, for Jesus to be called the Son of God is to claim that he is God. Jesus claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, is a claim to divinity. How do I know that? John chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews are wanting to kill Jesus. And in verse 18, we're told why. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. To call God his father was, in the eyes of the Jews, to claim that he was equal with God. You see, the the Jews understood that to call God his father was, was to claim that you shared in the same nature as the Father, as God. Now, of course, this brings us to the doctrine of the Trinity, which I'm not going to unpack this morning. But as Christians, we believe that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one God in three gods, no, no, one God in three persons. They share the same nature. They are of the same essence, but there are three persons within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there are very clear, direct passages in the New Testament where Jesus claims to be divine. But I'm actually more amazed by the indirect passages in the New Testament. The indirect things that Jesus says that would seem to indicate that he is divine. For example, in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus demands... That people love him more than they love their own family. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, there's only two conclusions you can come to when you read something like that. He's either God and he actually does have that right to claim that from all of us. Or he's an egomaniac. Because there is no person who has the right, no mere human who has the right to command you and I to love him more than our own families. Not only that, Jesus speaks of his angels. Specifically, sending his angels to judge in Matthew 13, 41 and Matthew 16, 27. He sends his angels. Who sends the angels in the Old Testament? God. It's also he who rewards and punishes the actions of mankind in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. 
In John's gospel, he claims to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And I think most profoundly, he claims to have the authority to forgive sins. That, to me, is what is most profound. Think about it. Jesus has no issue going to the person that has wronged you and saying to that person, without ever asking for your permission, your sins are forgiven. I can't tell Stefan, your sins are forgiven for sinning against Ernesto. Ernesto can forgive Stefan for that wrong. But Jesus says, I can. I have that authority. Now, the only way he has that kind of authority is if, one, he knows he's God or he is God, and two, ultimately, all sin is actually against him. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Because in none of these passages that I just read or, or made mention to, does Jesus teach that he is God? Rather, he assumes divine status. He assumes it. It's already presupposed. So why am I spending so much time on this? Why am I spending so much time on the who of the gospel? It's because I want everyone who is here to leave here with only two options. You can either embrace him as Lord, as God, or you can reject him as Lord. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You can't have him as a wonderful religious leader, a virtuous man to be followed. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. See, if Jesus wasn't the Christ, the Son of God, at best, he was delusional. At worst, he was an egomaniac. C.S. Lewis, the atheist, who became a Christian, when reflecting on the idea of Jesus having the authority to forgive sins, he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the th sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we discover here that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that has major implications for all of us. All of us. It means that he has a claim upon all of our lives. You might not acknowledge that claim, but he is your creator. He has a claim upon your life. So this gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the who of the gospel. Secondly, the what of the gospel. 
Very simple. Christ died. That's the what of the gospel. What happened in the gospel? Christ died. This gospel, this good news, is about the death of the Son of God. He died. And before we ask why, we just need to stop and reflect on this fact that the Son of God, the creator of the universe in flesh, died. The sinless Son of God tasted death. He died. Sometimes we reflect so much on why he died that we forget to stop and ponder those simple words. He actually died. And he didn't die just any death, but death by crucifixion. And we're so detached from the utter scandal of such an event. We wear necklaces that have golden crosses and these kinds of things. You would never have found a person living in the Roman world wearing a cross around their neck. In fact, even the Roman elites, though it was common in their nation or in their empire, they never wrote about it. It was a shameful thing. It was for the worst of criminals. It was the most degrading punishment that you could put a criminal through. And so all I want you to do right now, and I, I don't usually do this, but I ask you to close your eyes and relive the crucifixion of Jesus. They strip him down and scourge him with whips that had bones and stones at the end. Each lash grasping his flesh and ripping his body open again and again and again. Blood flowing from his body, the crowds watching with mockery. And then a soldier takes a crown of thorns and drives it into his head. Imagine here the anguish of Jesus' voice. Blood flows like a river down his face. They strike his head again and again. The soldiers then begin to spit on him. Their saliva mixed with his blood. They fall down in mockery, hail king of the Jews. And then they take him through the streets of Jerusalem with the crowds gathered around. And they take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And Jesus is dripping in his own blood. Do you see it? Covered in the saliva of these men, his wounds filled with dirt from the ground and the dust. And then they strip, strip him naked for all to see. And they lay him down on the cross. And then one of the soldiers comes and they drive the nail into his right wrist until it's been driven into the wood, piercing through flesh and bone. And they drive the nail into his left wrist until it's driven into the wood as well. And they take his feet and they do the same. They then lift up the cross and they put it in its place. And there, Jesus hangs in the air, 
crucified to a wooden tree, naked and covered in blood, nailed to a wooden beam for all to watch and see and mock. And the crowds, they do. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He died a criminal's death. The King of the universe hung on a tree, and while on that tree, he breathed his last and died. Friends, this is what happened. This is the what of the gospel. Christ died. So we've seen, you can open your eyes now, the who of the gospel, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and the what. He died, the what of the gospel. Yet, hear this, that was not the true horror of that day. It's the why of the gospel that reveals the true horror of that day. The why of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. For our sins. Two things we need to ask. What does Paul mean by the word sin? And secondly, what does Paul mean that Christ died for our sins? So first, the word sin. What does Paul mean by the word of sin? Well, there's, about, there's approximately 50 terms in the Bible to convey the idea of what sin is. So I'm just going to give you a summary really quickly. My understanding of what sin is according to the scriptures. First, sin is a corrupting disease. It is spread throughout a person's being that corrodes and corrupts our humanity. So when sin entered the world, our humanity and all of creation became corrupted, which means that sin is a corruption of good. The Bible makes clear we've all been corrupted by this disease called sin. It has spread through our whole being. We have all become sinful creatures. But if you think that makes you a victim, you're wrong. We're also, secondly, Willful, rebellious sinners. C.S. Lewis said this, Fallen man isn't simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. We've willfully rebelled and defied God's law and his ways. We've not just failed to meet God's standards, we've disregarded his standards altogether. We've sought our own autonomy from God. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've defied God's ways and we've established our own ways. Now I want to be clear. Sin isn't fundamentally rebellion against some abstract moral law. Sin is fundamentally rebellion against a person, the God who made us. And God's law is an extension of his character. And so by disobeying God's law, we're fundamentally disobeying and rebelling against the God who made us in his image. Let let me list for you 
some of the sins in the New Testament and Old that the Bible tells us is worthy of condemnation, deserving of God's judgment. Just in case you think you're not one of these sinners like the rest of us. For example, unrighteous anger. You ever lost it? On a child of yours, on a wife, on a husband, on a friend? Gossiping, boasting, pride, bitterness. You ever been bitter towards someone who has wronged you? Jealousy, complaining. You ever complained about your boss, your spouse, your children, your friends? Lust, that is looking upon someone with sexual intent within your mind and meditating upon it. Deceit, disobedient to parents, drunkenness, envy, selfishness, self-righteousness, crude talking, greediness, hatred, idolatry, that is loving created things more than God, judging, adultery, stealing, blasphemy, that is using God's name really as a cuss word, unforgiveness, and unbelief. Do you really believe that you haven't done any of those things? Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not that bad. I've done some of those things, but I'm not that bad. But the question is, by what standard are you declaring yourself to be not that bad? By your neighbor down the friend who, down the street who's an alcoholic? Or are you comparing yourself to the standard of the universe? which God has established, the standard is God. He is perfect, sinless, pure. These are terms the Bible uses to describe us, and because of this, the Bible makes clear we are worthy to be condemned. We are guilty before a good, pure, and holy God. You see, it's not so much that we've broken God's law, but rather we've been broken by God's law. God's law condemns us. We've been exposed for who we truly are. We are sinners. And the first step to understanding the good news of the gospel is coming to grips with this reality, that you have sinned against a holy God and are worthy and deserving of judgment. You are my, me as well, like the rest of humankind, a guilty, rebellious sinner. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. We don't want to acknowledge this, though the news is full of human evil. We see it in our, own, in our own lives, in our families' lives. So that answers what Paul means by the word sin. It is a corrupting disease. It's willful rebellion and disobedience against God and his ways. It's personal rebellion against a personal God. Secondly, what does it mean that Christ died for our sins? 
That's the reason he died, right? That's, that's what the word for is indicating. The reason for Christ's death was our sins. He didn't die because he was some revolutionary. He didn't die because the religious leaders had such a great authority over him or the Roman soldiers were able to overpower him. He died willingly for our sins. Remember what Jesus said? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. Jesus willingly died because of me, because of you, our sins. Paul's assuming a lot of things in these few words. First, Paul's assuming, he's presupposing that the penalty for sin is death. He died because of our sin. Romans 6.23, Paul also says this, for the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. The punishment from God for sin is death. See, before a good and holy, righteous God, we deserve to die because of our sin. See, God isn't only the creator of the universe, but he's also the righteous judge of the universe. And before him, we are guilty. So for Paul to say that Christ died for our sins, he's really saying that Christ bore the punishment, the penalty for our sin. The judgment from God that should have fallen on you fell on Christ. On the cross, Christ stood in our place, taking our sin upon him, and he faced the judgment of God for us. And there are countless texts that speak to this, and none so clear as Isaiah 53, which I read for you at the beginning of the service. Just listen to some of these words. This passage in Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the suffering servant, the Messiah, which is fulfilled in Jesus Listen to these words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who crushed him? You're going to find out very soon. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus our iniquity. Down to verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who crushed Jesus? It was God himself, his father. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that is Christ my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Through his death, we are made righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, This is what Jesus has done for us. He was crushed by his righteous father in heaven. God laid on Christ the sin of the world and he was crushed under the mighty just hand of God. Do you remember what I said earlier? The true horror of Christ's death wasn't the the physical crucifixion. It, It wasn't the Roman soldiers. It wasn't the shaming of the people. The true horror of Christ's death was that he would face the full judgment of God for us. 
When Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane before he was arrested, we're told that his soul was in anguish. And we're told that he actually sweated drops of blood. He prayed to his father asking that this cup, this cup of divine judgment might pass from him. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, for the first time in his whole earthly ministry, showed fear. He never feared anyone while being on the earth. But for the first time, he showed fear. Do you think it was because of a wooden tree or Pilate? Or the soldiers that put fear in Jesus? No. The horror of that day is that he would bear in his body the sin of the world and be crushed under the righteous retribution of God. That was what Jesus was in anguish about. Now I know that some of you may object to this. God is not a judging God. We hear that often in our society. He, he's a loving God. He, he, he's a forgiving God. He accepts us for who we are. Even if that were true, it wouldn't be very nice. Let me explain. Let's lay that down on the human level. You remember last year, Larry Nasser was put on trial for sexually assaulting hundreds of young girls. Now imagine if we followed that same logic when it came to the judge overseeing the trial. Imagine if the judge, after hearing testimony of testimony from these girls that Larry Nasser had done what he did, imagine if the judge said, well, I'm a loving judge. I look past these things and so I'm going to dismiss this crime. How would all of us respond? What would we think of the judge? What would we call the judge? We would call them not just a bad judge, but we would call them corrupt. They would be morally bankrupt. Why? Because as a judge, they are called to bring justice. And to be a good judge, they must bring justice. And I know that the streets, our society, would be in an uproar crying out for justice. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to God and our sin and the sin of others, we somehow want him to dismiss what we have done in our lives. But for God to dismiss any sin would be an act of injustice on his part. You see, a God who dismisses evil is not a God of love, but a God of indifference. And in the death of Christ, God shows that he's not indifferent to sin. He's not indifferent to our sin, but he also shows that he is overwhelmingly merciful because he laid on Christ what ought to have been laid upon us. This is what Paul means, that Christ died for our sins. Christ took our sin upon himself and was condemned for us. This is what Good Friday is about. The death of Jesus for sinners like you and me. 
It's a horrifying day in that the sinless, righteous Christ, the Son of God, was slain. But it's a glorious day because through Christ dying for our sins, he has provided the means by which we can have our sins forgiven and be made right with the God who made us, the one whom we sinned against. The Bible tells us that Christ died so that we could be restored to right relationship with our Heavenly Father. You see, Good Friday is a reminder of how unlovable we are, but also how much we are loved. And Paul tells us that the reason God crushed his own son for our sins was because of his love for us in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has revealed his love for us in the death of Jesus. This is the gospel of which Paul calls first importance. This is the only hope that you and I have. So how do we respond? Well, if you're a Christian here, I think there's really only one response. Let that truth, Christ died for our sins, fuel your worship and your devotion to Jesus. You can never love and live for Jesus too much. But if you're here this morning and you're wrestling, you don't fully know Jesus, you haven't embraced him, the Bible makes it very clear what we are to do in response to hearing the gospel. We are to repent of our sins, that is, turn away from our sins, renounce our sins, say, I no longer want to live for self and my sins, I want to live for Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then the Bible tells you to be baptized. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's not simply expressing a belief about him. You might even say, yeah, he's God. That's not biblical belief. That's not faith. It's not even placing your trust in what he has done in the past fully. To believe in him is to commit oneself to him. To say, I am yours. Have your way with me. You are Lord over my life. You are my Savior. And I give you my life for your glory. Will you do this today? Will you embrace the one who has died for our sins. Friend, there is no greater Savior in the universe. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, even after preaching about this for 45 minutes, it can still feel like we haven't touched the surface of this glorious truth. So Lord, help us. Help us as believers to devote ourselves more fully to Jesus today and moving forward. And Lord, open the eyes of the blind today and help those who do not see to see. 
Help those who do not hear to hear. Help those who have a heart, a heart of stone. Cause them, Lord, to have a heart of flesh that they might receive this morning the Savior of the world. And it's in him, his name we pray. Amen.